0: or be present to win. Visit lambkinguitars.com to scope out the hemp guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L A M K I N guitars.com.
1: Everything
2: is personal. Everything is personal, right here. Everything is personal, right here. Len May, DNA. hate guarantee when you press and play. Ladies and
1: gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything <laughs> Is Personal. And today we're super excited to have a great guest. Ruth Fisher, PhD, author of uh, "Medical Cannabis Primer" and the co-founder of Can Dynamics Inc. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. I, I've been looking forward to this.
1: Me too. So, before we jump into anything, where did you actually grow up?
2: I grew up in the Bay Area, the South Bay. Uh, And I was there through high school. And then I left for 15 years. I went to Philly. I know you're from Philly. Went to Philly for college, Chicago uh, for grad school. And Mm -hmm. then I got a job and was in Washington, D.C. for a number of years. And then I moved back home to the Bay Area where my family is.
1: So how was your experience living in Philly? You went to uh, Penn,
2: correct? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So was that West Philadelphia?
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was actually my mom's family's from Penn, from from Philly and the area around there. My uncle works at Penn. He's a he's a professor of finance there, uh, recently retired. Uh, but I so I'd been there a number of times before I went there, uh, and I really really enjoyed my college experience there. I thought it was a fantastic school, and I love being in Philly. Yeah,
1: well, I yeah, Philly's an interesting place. I mean, I I like being from Philly, but living in LA because I think there's a it's a different vibe. But when I go back to Philly, I had this experience. So last time I was in Philly, maybe not the very last time, but uh, prior to last time I was in Philly, I was visiting my my parents and and I uh, met my friend. We went to a restaurant and uh, I knew the owner of the restaurant and he closed it down and whatever. We hung out for a little bit and it was getting late, maybe like one-ish some of that in the morning and we're walking down the street to get to our car and there's a guy that's walking towards us like opposite us so i'm used to an la thing where somebody's walking towards you you acknowledge them hey you know like and i forgot for a second because i was in philly and when i was like hey it's like what's up what what i was like oh that's Why I left Philly. That reminds me. So it's always this angst and this aggression. And so anyway, my last experience, that was my reminder. So you went, you have a really interesting background. I really want to dig into uh, this whole notion of, you know, science and economics. And how they sort of merged together and how you utilized, you know, that background and uh, some of the things that you're really, truly interested in. How did you utilize that to get into, you know, we don't have to talk about exactly what you're doing now, but just your trajectory of your career. You went from that and science. So give give me a little bit of uh, uh, background and how that worked out for you.
2: So um, I've, I've always been good at math. Uh, and so when I was in in high school and when I got to college I, I was a math major and I took a lot of applied courses because I was looking for something to apply my math to so I took physics and accounting and finance and economics and a lot of different things and uh, I ended up in economics uh, however my dad is a private practice physician I should probably start there so I grew up in a medical household and he's while well, he's healthcare establishment, he was always his own person. He, he passed away in 2005, so he's no, no, no longer with us. Um, but he was my hero. He was my my idol. I worshipped him. He was my biggest fan and cheerleader. So he, he had a very, played a, a very large role in shaping my attitudes towards everything. Um, and when I was younger, I worshipped the healthcare industry and I thought they were very altruistic and, and they did so many wonderful things. And I spent a lot of time, uh, I've, and I, since then, I spent a lot of time working in healthcare, in biotech, and especially healthcare technologies. Um, I, as I mentioned, I had a job uh, in Washington, D.C. I was working in litigation support, where we provided expert testimony as to damages from intellectual property infringement and breach of contract. And I ended up working on a very large pharmaceutical case, a biotech case, and some other biotech cases as well. And I just I've always felt very comfortable in the healthcare industry. And also I've always had a, a huge fascination for knowledge, for how do you generate knowledge, how do you, you know, incentivize innovation, and how do you develop and commercialize that knowledge? And I've spent a lot of left mixing is the late 90s, early 2000s. And here in Silicon Valley, it was in the center of the dot com boom, and just a ton of activity, uh, a lot of startups. Um, and because of what I had done, it was kind of natural for me to liaise into uh, intellectual property and intellectual property, I, I kind of got uh, earmarked in valuation. Um, and so it's kind of that, you know, helping companies understand how to create value, how to monetize what they're doing. Um, Spent a lot of time doing that. And then at some point, I became pretty disenchanted because while I loved the innovation part, it seemed like the industry had moved out of the lab and into the courtroom. Because, you know, as companies got more developed, and you see the same exact parallels with Cannabis is you have very small companies at the beginning and a whole lot of very small companies and certain ones end up growing bigger. And now that they become established, they become very protective of their position. So there's a lot of litigation and people who are involved in litigation are generally not happy. People who are involved in innovating are happy people. Um, And and so I, I just enjoyed that more. I did I I worked with a company that was trying to create an eBay for patents. And I thought that was just a fantastic idea. And I have worked for a number of like really crazy different startups number in, um, healthcare, uh, technology as well. And I've been fascinated by the whole digital, uh, healthcare industry and how that's going to play out. But so just, um, technology and innovation and then somewhere along the lines uh, when I was in graduate school game theory was kind of fundamental to uh, what the way that I was taught a lot of things.
1: Yeah I was actually going to ask you uh, to define game theory really in in so you know the audience can all understand what the definition of what your definition of game theory is.
2: Okay so game theory is essentially strategic interaction. Among people. So you're in a market and you can be doing your own thing and you can be the best person out there and you can have the best product, but no man is an island and you're going to be affected by what other people are doing. So if you're doing something fantastic, someone else is going to come in and copy you, or someone else is providing very similar products and they're going to take away your customers. So it's not enough to focus just on what you're doing. You need to understand what other people are doing and how what they're doing affects you. So then you need to anticipate all this. And and we see a lot of this strategic interaction going on. Um, For example, Google versus Apple uh, and, and whatnot. And so what I do is I tend to look at markets and I look at the different players. I call them players because to me, it's all a big game. And see, you know, how they interact to create outcomes in the market. And to the extent that, you know, the market isn't getting the right outcomes, how do we change the environment to get better outcomes? And perhaps one of the easiest things that everyone can relate to is the healthcare system. So you have, you have the doctors, you have the patients, you have the big pharma, you have the insurance payers, you have everyone and you need everyone there. And they're all interacting to create outcomes, which is patient well-being and, you know, might not be well-being or, you know, but so you have these outcomes and, you know, are they good outcomes? Are we getting good outcomes? Are we getting a lot of wellness for the money that we're spending? And the answer is, is it's complicated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why I wanted to kind of dive into because uh, you brought up digital health and sort of I think we have different measures of success, right? Because if I am paying for uh, medical, uh, for medical practitioner, I'm paying out of pocket, or I'm using insurance, my goal is health and wellness. Like I want to have uh, to optimize myself for the best version of myself that can be. But then that's not really reimbursable a lot of times, nor is the pharmaceutical industry do they, do they even care that I am optimizing myself for my best health and wellness, or do they really want me to get onto some sort of plan that they can continually sell me products? so it's it's interesting. just wanted to get, get your thoughts on that.
2: You're, you're exactly exactly uh, addressing the big issues here, and that's that when we're playing this game, we're all entering the market. And we're each coming from our own particular perspective and we each have our own agenda. So what I'm trying to do is not the same thing that you're trying to do. And it's not like we're all coming together to do the same thing and create. We haven't all agreed what's the right outcome because what I'm trying to do is different from what you're trying to do. And the problem, the big problem here is that what I'm trying to do is completely what you're trying. To do. And that's that when you and I try and interact together, we're not harmonized. And so we're ending up clashing and spending a lot more money to get poor outcomes than we could all get if our actions were more harmonized. But there's no one out there in the system who's trying to, like, be the referee or be the adult in the room <laughs> and say, Okay, well, we've all decided this is what we want to do because that's just not the way the market works. It's an independent market where you have individuals coming together to decide to participate or not.
1: Is there a system that exists somewhere that say, okay, this is a really interesting model. And if we are able to implement this model here, this is the way I would like to implement the model because it, it's, it works. Uh, is, it, is it the Canadian healthcare system? Is that a good model to replicate where you know you, you have coverage and you have support, but you have you may have mediocre healthcare unless you pay for it to get the you know upper echelon. So you still have you still have this class system in healthcare. So I was just wondering maybe somewhere in the scandinavian countries they have some good models because that's that's the one thing that we always struggle in you know the name of the show is everything is personal we we talk about personalization all the time and you're absolutely right your outcome and your goals are different than mine so how can we customize something for for an individual uh based on my own needs and then and then plug it into the current system that we have is that even possible
2: It's so in my opinion, um, no, Canada's not doing it right. And Europe's not doing it right. It's very difficult because if you nationalize healthcare and if you put all the doctors on a salary, you know, if you take a doctor who, so take my dad and obviously I have a horse in the game here. My dad was in school until his mid thirties and he sacrificed a lot and spent a lot of time in school. While his friends were out, you know, working, but then, you know, having time off and going on vacation. And he spent a lot of time and money getting educated and then he comes out and he needs to pay off his loans and he needs to, you know, pay for, you know, his, his, his rent and everything. And, um, in order to be incentivized to uh, provide, let's see, how do I say this? I kind of got off on the wrong track here. So if you take someone like that, and you say, "Well, we're going to pay you seventy five thousand dollars," and I'm just pulling a number out of the air, we're going to pay you seventy five thousand dollars, and you get that no matter what happens, then you don't, you have no, you're not compelled as much to have the best interests of your patients at heart. If so, it's not a meritocracy, really, Mm -hmm. and you have to have a meritocracy to succeed in my opinion. And so what you do is you tie his payoff to his performance and, you know, if he's incentivized and if he does well, because he's going to earn more money and he's going to satisfy his patients and his patients are going to go out and recommend him to other people, then it's kind of, you're setting off a feedback loop that's self-reinforcing. If the system is such that you're going to get patients no matter what you do, because, you know, there's only so many doctors in the system, then you're not going to get that same type of feedback loop. And at the same time, if you put, and this is one of the hot button issues of our day, if you put price controls on pharmaceuticals, then, you know, costs now, now part of the problem is the FDA approval process, but it costs a billion dollars or more to bring a drug to market. And, You know, if you say, well, you're only allowed to charge $10, well, how are they going to recover their costs? They're not going to be willing. And this is, this is the problem that you see in cannabis. And I'm a huge advocate of whole plant cannabis, but you can't patent whole plant cannabis. So no one can get a patent on it. It can't be done to establish that their product works. And even if, so if they were to spend, you know, the million or the the billions of dollars it takes to get their product to market. And if it works, someone else is going to copy the same plant and they're going to free ride and be able to offer the same product without having had to pay for all the research. So there's a lot of things out there that, that sound wonderful and they sound like they should work and everyone would be happy. And the problem is, is a lot of things just don't work that way, and yeah. it's, when it's expensive to bring a product to market, then you can't expect to have it freely available for low prices.
1: Yeah, now I I agree with you, and I, I know what, I want to dive into the cannabis part in a, a minute or so, but I want to go back to what you were saying because I think you're onto something, uh, and I want to see where this this little gap is on. Incentive, right? So what you're saying is you're creating an incentivized program of compensation based on measure of success. Where I think yes. we we fail is the measure of success is different. So if you're doing customer satisfaction. So the customer satisfaction, if, if somebody is sick or somebody has a pain, let's let's say my ankle hurts and you go into a doctor. And a doctor gives you a shot in your ankle. Your ankle no longer hurts. So you can say, oh, you know, five stars. This doctor did exactly what I want them to do is stop my pain. But they haven't really addressed the root cause of my pain. So now I have to come in next week again to get another shot and continue to do so on an ongoing basis. So I don't know how to – and I'm just asking because I have no idea – I don't know how to structure an incentive uh, program where it makes sense because everybody's measure of success is different. Uh, You know, for me, I'm looking at preventative health. I don't want somebody to give me a shot or a pill that's going to take away whatever it is that's going on with me right now. I want to understand the source. So integrative functional medicine is something that I'm kind of attracted to because Looking at what are the root causes? Where is where is what causing uh, the actual pain? And I'm okay with a temporary analgesic as long as I realize there is something else that we can do to cure, which is a bad word in medicine uh, nowadays. But uh, you know, get rid of the root cause of that pain. So I'm just trying to figure out a way, perhaps. It's a combination of several different factors, right? So perhaps it's a combination of giving you something that is going to address the pain if you know uh, that we're also working on something to address the root cause, which is anti what the pharmaceutical model is because it takes away from their bottom line. So yeah, you said it, you're spending a billion dollars to get a drug to market, uh, they're, they're paying salespeople to go into doctor's offices and say, hey, let's use an example. This is a great example because this is happening right now over and over and over. The z pack right? It's an antibiotic. The z pack has been promoted as an antibiotic for everything. And I have people that, are, that I'm speaking to and they, they have a, uh, a viral infection and their doctor gives them the z pack and I talk to people all the time. I'm taking the z pack. I'm like, I don't believe that antibiotics are for viral infection. I thought it was bacterial infection. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But, you know, it's an easy Google search or WebMD search. So the incentive, because it costs them so much money to get this product out. It's easy to use. The doctors are being incentivized in certain ways uh, to be able to. So why not just easy right a Hey. Here we go. It, it feeds the entire system. The pharmaceutical companies making money. Uh, you know, the, the pharmacies are making money. The pharmacists are making money. Everybody. And at some point, maybe the placebo effect is taking care of the healing process while you're feeling that you're taking something that's working for you in the first place. So everybody's happy but didn't really solve the the issue. So I am just bringing it out there and you we're saying the same thing. This is this is yeah. the challenge of the yeah. industry and that's where I think uh you know cannabis and traditional therapeutics can come in and have sort of a, a parallel path to that. We we I have nothing against pharmaceuticals. I think pharmaceuticals have their place. I believe that you know there's also traditional therapeutics that the pharmaceuticals are based uh, on in the first place, that we may be able to replicate. And I agree with you about, you know, a whole plant, uh, you know, cannabis, or, or just taking an actual chemical variety and saying, this is what it is, and replicating that. But perhaps you can formulate specific cannabinoid terpene profiles that have some efficacy for a specific condition. I mean, you know, GW showed us that there is a possibility. Yes, it's an isolated molecule. Yes, it's Epidiolex. Yes, it's for, you know, childhood race and uh, epilepsy and all that stuff. But what if you combine that with a, a couple of different ingredients? Maybe it's four ingredients instead of just one. And uh, sort of start looking at, you know, formulations that are extractive formulation or more specific. Maybe that, that's an, a way to go. So I'm just putting it out there that trying to solve the healthcare challenge. uh, Maybe that's something we can do together.
2: (laughs) There's a lot in what you say. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. There's a couple of points that I think are, and perhaps the biggest one is the fact that in the healthcare system, you have a separation between the person recommending the care and the person paying for the care. And so the fact that the insurance company is paying for the care Puts this wedge in there that kind of separates things, and you also have. So I, I mean, that's huge because what it's doing, it's constraining what the doctor is able to do and what the patient is able to do,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, that's that's creating barriers to them being able to kind of get to a good solution. Um, the other thing, and there's there's a couple of different things going on here. The other big thing that's going on is I would say um, if you look at doctors now, so patients have become, we all know one of the reasons that cannabis is so critical is it's a personalized therapeutic that addresses personalized conditions. And through cannabis, uh, people, the people in the industry recognize that cannabis is personalized medicine. And People are not all the same. And if you look at the doctors and the way that they're treating the patient, to work with the patient, to try and figure out what the root cause is, it takes them 20 seconds to say, here's a ZPAC. And he knows he's going to get reimbursed and he knows, you know, all this other stuff and the patient's now out of his office and he can move on to the next patient. And so you have, there's a confluence of factors that have been happening over time in the healthcare system as, as it's evolved. And I've I traced it back, you know, to, to quite for quite some time. And kind of what's going on is the doctors are being reimbursed at lower and lower rates. And so each patient they see, they get fewer and fewer dollars, which means in order to maintain a certain level of income, they need to have a certain patient volume. Right. So long and short of it, And for at least half that time, if not more, the doctor isn't even looking at the patient. They're typing stuff into the computer. And, you know, it's really, and I know because I've had my share problems, knock on wood. Very difficult to try and figure out what that root causes that you said, you know, well, you're only treating the pain, but not getting down to it. And I think there's another thing that that people, many people, most people, I would say don't understand is doctors know very little, relatively speaking. And so you come and a patient, he was an eye doctor and a patient would call up and say, you know, my eye is red. Can you call in a prescription? And he would say to me, have them come in for an office visit. And so I would say, you know, the doctor would really like to see you. Could you come in? And they would say, no, just call in the appointment. You know, I mean, just call in the prescription. And, you know, I'd be conveying this to my dad and he would look at me. And he's like, okay, a red eye can be anything from allergies to a brain tumor. And if I prescribe a prescription and it turns out to be a brain tumor, I'm liable. And that's a huge issue. And so. You know, you come in and you have a. It could be a million than the time it's going to take to get to the root cause when it could be really, really difficult. Or does he just want to prescribe the opiate, which is a whole lot easier and it works within the yeah. system? E-
1: exactly. I, yeah, I, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly it, and I think that sometimes it's easier if you if you go back and say, okay, what's what's the one thing I can do for the patient because they don't have time that's going to cause them the least amount of harm? I can get them some eye drops. They're not going to really cause a lot of harm. It may not, it, it's definitely not going to help the tumor, but it may help the the one thing. So if that doesn't work, at least I didn't harm them in any way. And that's what opiates were supposed to be in the beginning. Yeah. And we realized yeah. that it's not. And I, I know there's so many... And I was surprised. I was working with with doctors on trying to, you know, provide them small turn of to to opioids with uh, with phytocannabinoids, and they were saying that it's the patients that keep asking for the opioids. They keep calling up and saying more and more, more and more, and uh, the doctors were just writing scripts for them, like, "Oh, okay, well, it's working for them. Let's continue doing it." And they didn't realize, you know, they're taking three, four, ten times right. the amount that's being right. prescribed. I mean, and uh, and are dependent on it, and I don't even think like genetically. Just because that's that's what I do, there is predisposition to opioid dependence. Uh, nobody, you don't go to the doctor and the doctor does your you know, genetic test or anything like that, and says, you know what? Maybe we should hold off on opioids for you because you have a genetic predisposition to right, opioids. Right. Maybe we should skip that and try something else. That doesn't even happen because, as you said, the reimbursement isn't there. They're not. You're not going to get the money. It's not. It takes too long. Uh, There's all these different things with the insurance companies. So it's, you know, different, different parties have different incentive. You're you're absolutely right about that.
2: So, you know, let me stop you there for a second. There's a really interesting perverse issue here. And that's that You've heard of value-based care and a lot of people out there say, well, that's the way to go. You know, you try and, and, you know, solve the problem at the lowest price and that you're paying for, for solving the problem or for doing what the patient wants. And in most value-based care systems, you have patients rating the doctors, and if the patients rate doctors higher, then they get better bonuses or payment schemes or whatever. And if they rate them lower, then the doctors are penalized. Well, in a lot of cases, and I've read this, the doctors, uh, the patients come in and they want a prescription, and if the doctor tries to say, "Well, that's not really the right medication for you," the patient's going to slam the doctor on their And the doctor is going to get penalized. So, again, what is his incentive to do? To do the right thing for the patient who doesn't really appreciate that Mm -hmm. and to risk, you know, not getting uh, as much money as he normally would, or to just Mm -hmm. give the prescription, which is quick and easy and everyone's happy.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's the doctor's values. Should always be if, you, if you're really talking, doctors are at a medical school, they're not jaded by the system. They're always going to say, You know what? Our goal is to heal the patient. Whatever we can do to heal the patient, the patient doesn't know what they want. And I don't care if they rate me bad because I didn't give them something that's, that may not be right for them. I'm going to go and I'm going to prescribe and recommend and do whatever I can to help them heal because I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But I think as they get deeper into the system, they start getting jaded, uh, like you yeah. said, because there's different kind of uh, you know incentives working there. Yeah, right.
2: so, not- there's, an, there's another really, really interesting issue here, and, and that's the fact that in, in in America especially, the doctors they take an oath to do no harm,
1: right?
2: And they take it very seriously. And this is, I mean, this is a huge issue. if you talk to doctors the risk profile, the risk that the doctors are willing to assume for the patient is much less than what the patient is willing to do. Now, my brother, I came to cannabis because my brother has multiple sclerosis. That
1: was my next question, by the way. Yes. So you already be me yes. to it.
2: Yes. <laughs> and And this was a very, very interesting issue. So my brother ended up on his own and he found cannabis. Actually, one of his doctors had recommended to him, he he gets really, really bad pain. And one of his doctors had said, you know, I think cannabis might help, but I can't give you any guidance. And so he kind of, he left the traditional system and was on his own and found cannabis on his own. But at the same time, so for people who don't know, multiple sclerosis is a progressive disease. You just progressively essentially decompose. You just get worse over time. And at some point, my brother started doing his own research. Actually, since the beginning, he started doing his own research. And long and short of it is he ended up having a stem cell transplant. And he had to leave the country to do this, because there's one place in the United States that offers it, uh, Chicago. It's in um, um, uh, medical trials, He applied for the trial and they essentially told him he wasn't sick enough. So he left and he went to Mexico and he came back. And when he started telling his doctors here that he got stem cell transplant, um, his doctors, a lot of them were horrified and in a million years would never have considered it because what what it did is it halted the progression. So, you know, for several years now, he's actually gotten better. Not only has he not gotten worse, but he's gotten better. And no doctor here will consider it because there is a small risk of really serious. Doctors are not willing to take that risk. Now you have a patient, and in my brother's case, he was facing losing his mobility, ending up in a wheelchair. And he said, it's worth it to me, you know, given the quality of life that I want to have, I'm willing to undertake this risk, but the doctor wouldn't. And it turns out that in a lot of cases, and especially when you're dealing with cannabis, and I'm sure you see it probably more than I do, um, where you see patients who have been completely left behind by the traditional system, they have a lot of really big problems. And the doctors just won't give them any really good care. And in a lot of cases, it's not necessarily the doctor's fault because they're limited to what they can do, depending on, you know, if they're within a hospital system, obviously, we all know that. Those hospitals can't recommend cannabis, but as far as more radical treatments, a lot of doctors aren't willing to risk uh, doing harm, even if there's a very good chance you'll get a better outcome.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you about stem cells because I I actually have several people that I know with MS that went to Germany and other places and got stem cell uh, uh, therapy, replacement therapy, and is extremely successful. And uh, uh, say exactly what you described. I, I think, and in, in I'm, I'm doing research on stem cells now, and uh, uh, Tony Robbins has his book called uh, Life Force, and he talks about Robert Harari and the, the stem cell work that they're doing there, and, and some of the work they're doing with placenta stem cells, which actually creates sort of a blank canvas stem cell. Right.
2: right. What,
1: what I'm finding is parallels. I'm glad you brought that up between cannabis and even stem cell because the, they're saying it's not an FDA-approved treatment. So even though I think it may not cause harm, it may be less harmful in a lot of other things, but because it's not FDA-approved, I am liable. And my liability, my livelihood is based on my insurance. So if if something happens, my insurance is going to go through the roof. I won't be able to afford my practice or treat people. I'd rather err. And if somebody does, if if something happens with an FDA approved drug, at least I have that as a defensible position. It's an FDA approved, went through clinical trials. Here's the, the drug. But if I'm suggesting something else, then I have that liability. And we we used to see, I used to work with a lot of cancer patients, still here and there. And unfortunately, they used to come as the last resort. So as you were saying, yeah. they've exhausted everything. Right. They've tried, they've tried, and they were given, you know, six months to live. Right. And like, ah, hey, you know, make your arrangements, whatever it is. And they would come to us. And six years later, they were, you know, six months versus six years. And we've had so many of them. And I'm not making any claims. I'm just saying these. this is the reality. Right. And if you look at what's going on in certain countries, they're looking at cannabis as medicine now with uh, trials and everything else. Even Germany, it's got a really interesting uh, system where in, in their protocol to try cannabis, you have to try something else first.
2: Yep. Yep.
1: So you go through a qualifying condition, then you say, okay, we already tried this. Right. It was not successful, not efficacious. So now we're recommending cannabis and then they press a button and insurance uh, can then give you a, you know, pre-qualified approval that they'll cover cannabis because it's a pre-existing condition. You've tried something else, you know, at least it's one. Not like this is the last resort right, here, right. Uh, but still, you know, it really should be considered as one of the one of the options. And I, I really think going back to what you were saying, you know, until we get to a point where we can start saying yes, okay, there is a cultivar, there's a chemical variety, you know, it, it's it's sort of like a supplement. There's so many different components to it. We don't know. We know it works for many different things, but we don't know which combination of those right. things works. Right. Like uh, D- David Miri, Dr. Uh, Dedi in Israel, that w- who he's doing with the Petri dish uh, kind of uh, experiments. And he sees, you know, this is working for this person. This is not working for... So if, if we can even get a small constituent, say, you know, for these symptomatic conditions or these diseases, it seems to me that this combination is more efficacious. At the very least, we can get past that and have it as medicine. I, I don't know if the FDA is even prepared to start looking at that, especially as a Schedule One. At least, you know, I, I'm I'm for like let's let's deschedule it all together. But at the very least, baby steps. Let's reschedule it so we can have real clinical research. Uh, because we know what the observational research is we we know what the feedback is from from patients it's been documented fairly well but I think I read somewhere or you were talking on a on a program and you, and you were saying something about well yeah great that we have you know all this uh, feedback but when we talk about research that's what it means it's like a real clinical, uh, you know, a real clinical study that is going to be, you know, all three phases, very similar to what they're doing with the MDMA now uh, for, yeah. you know, for depression and, and PTSD. Can we go through that? And I think, yes, the door is open to doing that, but I don't know if the current administration cares enough to even reschedule it to uh, something that we can use in this, in this, uh, in this uh, you know, clinical trials.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have two different comments on what you've just said. One is, I think the medical industry uh, fails to recognize that when you're talking about healthcare, and I'm not trying to minimize the value of people's health or well-being or whatever, but when you're looking at people in the healthcare system and looking and people looking to use cannabis, there's two different groups of people in the system and it's not a clean divide but it's people who are dealing with really serious issues like cancer and there's other people who are dealing with issues that are not really serious now they might be difficult but they're not serious like pain and to give someone a drug like cannabis that might have some, you know, other issues. When they're trying to deal with pain is a very different issue than tra- dealing with someone with say cancer uh, or epilepsy or whatever where you really don't want to mess around. And so the idea that you need to apply these, you know, 99.999% standards to someone who really just wants to deal with their migraines is I think wrong. And so I think they need to 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 separate out the serious cases that really need the FDA approval track kind of thing and others that don't. And the other issue that I would like to address that I've seen is that, you know, in the healthcare, that you really want to know what's going on with the medications before recommending them to patients. Um, It's, it's a serious issue of being responsible for recommending someone to someone and, you know, when there's a risk there. However, and this is the big issue, however, it's going to take them 5, 10, 20, 30 years or more to really feel comfortable enough that they're ready to prescribe cannabis. And in the meantime, what are all the people who are suffering now supposed to do until the doctors feel comfortable with that risk? And that's the issue I have. And again, especially after seeing how my brother has been treated by the system.
1: Yeah, I completely, completely agree with you because we need clinical trials for specific diseases and uh, uh, and that'll be prescribed as medication. But I think there's other classifications that the FDA can apply. There's medical food products, for instance. Yes. Yes. And, and and if that's the case, we have a constituents of different products that the FDA just approves for that symptomatic condition. It's not talking about, you know, a cure or something, uh, you know, as serious, a like cancer, but also what it did, it made sure that whatever the product is supposed to be is in there. So it approves the consistency of the product. So if I'm going to, and it used to be prescribed, now those right. medical food right. categories are over the counter. I can, I should be able to go into my vitamin store and n- Anywhere that I go and I'm going to get my formulation that supports sleep, it's not making a claim that's curing anything, but I know that it's been tested. I know that it's been tested to the standards and it's consistent no matter where I go. And I think that's something that's available and doable right now. And that's why I was talking about, you know, rescheduling it because that that'll allow that opportunity to sort of branch off on those two. There is medicine, which is the jazz pharmaceuticals and the Merck's. And we're going to we're going to have to work together with them uh, as an industry to be able to have real medicine. But then there's therapeutics and these therapeutics are for those specific conditions. Uh, You mentioned migraines, headaches, uh, chronic back pain. I'm not trying to cure. You know, yes, it's not replace them for surgery but is it going to make me feel better yeah I mean and those kind of things that are supportive therapeutics and I think we can do a parallel path I completely agree with you um, can dynamics what what is what is uh, can dynamics
2: so uh, when my my brother came to cannabis in about 2015 2016 and he started using it on his own and he started getting some results but at some point he realized that if he knew what he was doing, he would probably be getting better results. So at some point he came to me and given my background in research and healthcare, he said, can you help me figure this out? So that's, you know, at that point, I literally knew nothing about cannabis. I had used it, you know, a couple of times. It wasn't really my thing, but I knew zero, zero about cannabis. And I had been with my brother, um, Seen what he'd been through on his journey. And I'm like, if he says this works, I mean, he's tried everything. That's all I care about. Let's try and figure out how to make it happen. So that was kind of how I came to cannabis. So I just jumped in and just started reading and trying to figure out how it works. And I'm giving him little tidbits. Well, this study says this, or this research says this. And he's trying it and incorporating it. And lo and behold, it's working. Um, so Among other things, he's, he's an engineer and he came up with an idea. So this is now 2016, early 2017, maybe, um, on how to create an app to help uh, people go through the same journey that he was going through, but in a more elegant way. Um, So it's essentially, you're seeing these now out there now, these tracking apps. Um, But we came up with an idea for a tracking app at the time and The industry is still very young, and and granted, it had evolved to that point, um, but it was still very young. We spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time doing research on figuring out how to design algorithms to match plant products to people based on the particular issues they have, Uh, did the research, put the research together, design algorithms, and my brother was doing the back-end system on the data uh, and the GUIs, the design for the user interface and whatnot. Um, we, at that time, um, as I said, we had done a lot of research and put it together. And my dad, my brother said, uh, you know, we have such amazing research that people can use. We should put this out in a book. So we released the medical cannabis primer. And so that reflects the information that we had gathered to do this technology. Um, but at that time, what we needed, uh, what we needed in order to be able to do the tracking effectively, the industry still hadn't gotten there yet. So we were really ahead of the curve. And so we had to kind of go on pause and um, that's kind of where can dynamics ended. Uh, But since then it, it was what gave me a window into the industry, what's going on. It it gave me an excuse uh, to do all that research, to understand. And in the process I've become a humongous cannabis of uh, cannabis advocate of cannabis medical cannabis um, uh, for availability for transparency of information for not having cannabis as you know a last line resort to have it as a first uh, a treatment available to patients um, and so I've been continuing to do all that research and trying to still learn as much I you know the more I know about cannabis the less I feel I know
0: right. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I, I love this whole notion of cannabis uh, is expert. Like, yeah. you know, we get introduced cannabis expert. I'm like, man, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if Dr. Mushom or, or Ethan Russo are cannabis experts per se. Uh, maybe you know, more of an expert, but to me, I was always, I'm a, I'm a student. Yes. Like I'm, I'm yes. just open to learning because every single day it's something else. And yes. I don't know if there's yes. anybody that's an expert in cannabis, or anything, because we really don't know a lot. We know, we know what we know, but I'm sure there's like huge amount that there's still unknown. So, but, but having a passion for it allows us to learn uh, more quickly uh, through all that stuff but I wanted to get your opinion on how you think the recreational uh, market or this this whole notion I can't even stand the word recreational like adult use how how is that affecting the medicinal market
2: this is something I also feel very strongly about I've I've spoken written on it I think that uh that, that adult use is driving out medical because um, now I have nothing against adult use cannabis, but my focus is uh, medicinal and making sure that people who really need it have access to it. Uh, The problem is, problem, (laughs) is that the adult use market is going to swamp the medicinal market, which means that, you know, anyone who's trying to earn money, which is most people out there, are going to focus more on adult use. And the big problem is, is the focus of the, the needs of adult use, uh, users are very different from medical users. And so you're, you're getting, you know, all the States start as medicinal. And so you have hundred percent medicinal activity. And as soon as they open up to recreational, you see this gradual shifting of resources away from, uh, the medicinal into the recreational. And I think that that's, that's really sad, um, What's really interesting is I've done a lot of um, analyses on this and the record, the recreations, the regulations that are put in place really, really, really matter. They completely 100% shape the development. And I'll give you an example. So I did this one analysis and I was looking at all the licensees. You have the growers, the dispensaries, um, um, and the processors, um, and I, I was looking at four different states. And as you know, everyone knows, that first they start with medicinal use. And then at some point, they open it up to recreational use. And in two states, what they did is when they were opening it up to recreational, they went to the medicinal people, the people who already had licenses to operate. And they said, you guys get first priority. And so they could become joint licensees Joint medical and recreational. And in two other states, and I didn't realize that my sample would end up like this because I picked two states, I picked four states that had been in the industry long enough, had had medical use and recreational use long enough that there was time for the industry to evolve somewhat. And so the other two, when they decided to open up to recreational, it was fair game, anyone, you know, come one, come all. So they did not give priority to the medical uh, licensees. And if you look at the nature and the evolution of the businesses in the industry, they're very different. In the first industry, you see the same companies obviously doing both medical and recreational. And when you have the same joint, you have the same company owning both sets of of, uh, say dispensaries, you can shift resources a hell of a lot easier from medical to recreational and whatnot. So it's going to be a lot more slippery. In the other two states where they separately license direct users, you have have one set of companies are in the adult use market and a completely separate set of industries are in the medical use market. And what that does is it creates a very different dynamic between the medical uh, and adult use uh, businesses. And this is... It's not something you would have thought of beforehand. And it's this one very small rule that the regulators put in place that completely changes the dynamic of how the industries evolve. And this was quite some time after they had opened up to recreational. So those small initial changes ended up being very sticky. Yeah.
1: Now it makes total sense because even like in California, uh, you know, obviously started as a, as a medical and became a a adult use recreational state. And as that started happening, the product variety changed. So you have a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, higher THC products, flour, obviously, but flour is is fine, but you have concentrates and you have every single type of concentrate. And what's been happening, I I mean, one of the reasons why we do our endo DNA test is one one of the challenges is that people have an adverse event uh, is, you know, not only drug to drug interaction, but dosing. And they don't understand how are they going to, you know, a concentrate a vape or even, you know, uh, uh, dabs or all these concentrates they're are 50, 60, 70, 80% or somewhere 99% THC. And, uh, and it's not really, you, you know, a, a medicinal, Per se, or therapeutic product in that way, but then the challenge comes back from palliative care and saying, "Well, if people are you know need to feel need to feel better, this is a, an alternative to an opiate for palliative care." So these products are medicinal products for that sense. So I, I would say I agree with both sides, but you have to have variety, uh, and you're not going just after it costs me very very little to extract really poor quality cannabis and make it into an oil and create all these concentrates because now I have, I can repurpose, you know, this, this plant many different ways instead of, you know, creating one-to-one products with a certain terpene profile. That's uh, you know, it it takes a lot more work and, uh, and costs a lot more money. So maybe this is not the way to go. And I think there are certain states uh, that incentivize medicinal programs like uh, you know, giving you a discount, not paying a tax. Uh, Colorado does that. Or, or like Pennsylvania, where they have a medical program that also incentivizes the, the owners of the dispensaries or or the the manufacturers to provide a portion of uh, the revenue towards research. And they have specific research with specific universities that participate in, uh, you know, UOP, Drexel, Temple, etc. So, on until we have some sort of federal oversight and i'm not a big hey regulations and all that stuff but i don't understand how it could possibly work in in a in a really consistent way yes states can still develop you know their own nuances but you have to be able to serve the the everybody uh, i have nothing against as you said if you want to use it for recreational purposes great uh dab away i have no issue with that but If uh, we're dealing with people who literally saying, I'm going to a dispensary and I cannot find any medicinal products, I don't want to get really high. So what they're doing is they're shifting to CBD. And now we have a whole different issue because CBD is not regulated. It's not tested. People are like, I'm taking, uh, you know, 3,000 milligrams of uh, CBD. Well, how do you even know? Is there a CFA with that? Right now, what else is in it? Right. Anything. Is it even CBD? Or are you, maybe you're an ultra-rapid metabolizer. Maybe you don't even need that much. You know, all these different things are a poor metabolizer. But it, it has to be a little bit of oversight. And I'm not sure how we're going to get there, uh, even though the current administration keeps talking about we believe in, you know, releasing prisoners and all that stuff. But at the very least, make a move towards regulating all these things at a very high level. So at the very least, people who really need a therapeutic, uh, you know, cannabinoid uh, formulation of some sort, they can go into a dispensary and buy it just as the person's going to go buy, you know, his diamonds or his uh, his dabs or, or her dabs, etc., cetera, uh, or edibles. If they want a thousand milligram uh, edible, great. Have that variety available. That's up to them. Uh, if they want a beverage great but if somebody wants a you know a product that is uh, you know one to one or 15 to one and has terpenes on it have it as readily available as the other one and that's what I think is going to be fair for for uh, for the people but it, it has to be some incentive even on the state levels when they're shifting these programs California when they had their medical uh, program which which is had it, all kinds of uh, challenges, too. But when they went wreck, uh, basically, that market started shifting and dried up really quick. And then you you really don't have the type of variety of products, even though we have everything here. Right. And when I travel around the country, we're super spoiled. I mean, like, wow, you, right. you don't have what? Yeah. But but really, it's becoming less and less and less because it's really less profitable, I guess, at the end right. of the day.
2: right. Well, in addition to the products, education is so important. And I've been watching that. That's an area that's close to my heart. And it's particularly difficult for people in the industry to monetize providing education. And, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to do that. You need, need to have some sort of tax break or something. There's an economic concept that goes way back when called resale price maintenance. And that's where... Went into a car showroom, knowledgeable about the cars, and you could actually go and sit in the cars and take test drives and get educated. That type of model doesn't work if you can go online and buy the same discount. Have to pay for the showroom and pay to educate the salespeople, and so if you establish a, a a minimum price, so you know, so suppose a car. You know, you could sell it for $25,000, but you need to charge extra for the showroom. So you say, well, you can't charge below $30,000. And that gives the showroom a margin of $5,000 to use to pay for the showroom and to educate. $1,000. And they can get the services that you're providing value to the customers. It's, it's information that they want and they need, but they can't pay for it, you know, if someone's going to undercut them. So it was this model where they ena- enabled a buffer, but that was determined to be uh, price fixing or, or collusion and it was determined yeah. to be illegal. So we don't have that anymore. But you need some system that guarantees a buffer. Now, one of the things that would do it would be tax breaks. And, you know, to have much lower tax breaks tax rates for medical than recreational. And what I've seen is, you know, they'll forego, say, sales tax, but the excise taxes are still really hefty. And I mean, it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. And, and so the customers will just go and buy it from rec and, and you end up shaving and it just it doesn't work. And you have independent people, say an independent consultant who can provide the information, but how did they get paid? Because no one wants to pay them. Because when you go into a pharmacy and get that information from the pharmacist, they're getting paid, say, from the drug company, you know, and, and so the same type of model that works in the traditional healthcare system isn't working in cannabis, and they really need to figure that out.
1: Well, it can. You. Just hit, this is the model. You just said the model. Why do we have, and by the way, I used to have a bunch of dispensaries and I, I respect uh, butt tenders, but why do we have in this industry a, a butt tender instead of uh some sort of pharmacist that is making a suggestion that understands that you're you may be taking other prescription medication? Uh, there's no other this is this is the gap in the industry that's keeping us sort of in the dark ages. We have to get to the exactly what you just said the manufacturers and the owners uh, pay a pharmacist of some sort to to be able to make those uh, suggestions and recommendations that come from a doctor, even if it's even if it is for recreational purposes. Uh, still, it would be really good to know if somebody is taking. Like, I'll give you an example. I was I was at an event and uh, there was a bunch of really young people at this event. And they were talking about sort of making fun about our endo DNA test. Like, who needs that stuff? I'm, uh, you know, I I dab all day long. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, it's not enough for you. And I was talking to uh, somebody else next to the person that started saying that. And we were talking about edibles. And that person comes back and says, you know what? It does happen to me with an edible. I can dab all day, but an edible. And I said, "Do you want to know why?" And yeah. here's the thing: and you, you have an educational opportunity for the for everybody. So yeah, we need to change the way that we actually present this a, as a product. Yes, it, you know you you don't have pharmacists in GNC uh, because you're creating you're pro- providing supplement, but there is no <laughs> there is no euphoric. Uh, maybe there are some in some uh, sort of supplements, but you're you're not getting high off of uh, you know a, your vitamin D or your your uh, men's uh, you know over fifty supplement formulation or some of that. So having a some sort of healthcare professional participate in this process, I think will help us kind of lift uh, the entire industry out of out of the dark ages. Because if we can if we continue to do it this way. I just don't think there's uh, there's room for us to grow uh, as a real, true uh, therapeutic industry.
2: Now, the problem there, are conflict of interest laws, and I've looked into this, and the doctors aren't allowed to get paid by, you know, the product companies, and, and so it, it seems weird because, it, you know, you have pharmacists right now, but, and I'm not an expert on the law, but there's a lot of this a lot of the reason that the healthcare system in all its different incarnations is so messed up is because the laws, there's so many laws and regulations that are really, really anti-competitive in nature and they're kind of on purpose. Like I don't know that you know, if you want to open a hospital in an area, you have to get permission from all the other nearby hospitals in order, you know. And what you think they're going to say, yeah, bring it on the competition. Sure. Yeah. Bring <laughs> but that's that's the law, you know, you need to do it. And so, so much of the perversion in the system is due to perverse laws. And so, you know, you would need to get around those.
1: Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting to, we're getting to it. Uh, and uh, I think it's going to come to a head at some point once I think it's a money thing it always goes it always back did. to money. Once, did. once the cannabis industry starts making a little bit of uh headway, I mean, it is, it is a big industry, but it's not that big yet. It's nowhere near the pharmaceutical or the other lobby power groups. And I think once they do, and we can start getting a little bit more clout, I think we can change some of those regulations, but it's definitely going to take a little bit of time. Uh Okay. So I have a few questions that I ask all my guests uh, towards the end of uh, our uh, program. So uh, get ready. Uh, Some of them may be difficult. Uh, Please describe your first experience with cannabis.
2: Trying to think back. It was, so I had, I had smoked cannabis a number of times and didn't feel anything. And then the first time that I finally felt it. I was really drunk at the time and it was in college I was at a party, really drunk, uh, smoked cannabis and the combination of the cannabis and the alcohol was extremely intoxicating. So it's just a very intoxicating experience. It wasn't negative or anything, um, but that, that was the first time.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there, there, it definitely is a different uh, feeling when you're mixing it with alcohol, uh,
2: yeah, than just yeah. cannabis
1: by itself. Um, okay, well, I'm a big music uh, guy, so you know, I have a bunch of albums, and music is uh, part of my life. Do you uh, remember what the first concert that you ever attended was?
2: Concerts, um, the one was the Hooters in Philly oh, when I was at really? Penn because they're a local band there. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was them.
1: Uh, do you remember what the first like album you bought? Or...
2: Uh, Pat Benatar.
1: Uh, are you listening to anything interesting today?
2: Um, no, just very eclectic mix of a lot of different things. I like um some I like classic rock, uh, mm-hmm. some pop, uh, a lot of new age uh, a rhythmic, um, a lot of, I guess now what you would think of as psychedelic. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: like, like, is there anything that, uh, that it's sort of, uh, newer or obscure that you want to share? Maybe people can listen to as well.
2: One that I listen to is land of the Incas that I really like, which is like Peruvian, a lot of wind. I really Hmm. like wind.
1: Cool. Uh, what has cannabis meant in your life?
2: <sighs> cannabis is, it's the first time that it, it, I felt like I've had a purpose. It's been really life-changing for me. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people say this, so I'm not the first person, but 10 years ago, if you had said that I'd be in cannabis, I would have laughed at your face. Uh, <laughs> As a matter of fact, I have a friend from high school, and when I wrote The Medical Cannabis Primer, I sent it to her. She was always a very um, big cannabis user through you know, uh, college, at least, probably in high school, too, but going way back. And I never was. Um, so when I came out with my book, The Medical Cannabis Primer, I sent it to her, and she said, the book, I'm not surprised about. The fact that it's on cannabis, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but based on my brother's experience and kind of what it gave him and what I see the the impact of the plant on so many other people. And it's not only only that it helped so many people, but it helped them to such a degree that there are so many people in cannabis who just want to help. They become very passionate advocates of making cannabis available so other people Can be saved like they were. I've never seen anything like that in any other industry, and I'm really proud to be a part of it.
1: That's great. I I love what you just said, and I think that uh, people like you are actually helping to remove the stigma because it's not this, uh, you know, the stoner kind of typical kind of, uh, uh, it's a person who. Uh, who went through an experience and, and, and looked at it from a different angle. So, I mean, I I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, All right. Last bonus question, please describe what your room looked like growing up.
2: Um, Wow. Uh, Yellow. Nothing I have today is yellow because my room is yellow. Uh, I shared a room with my sister Um, and we had a small TV And two dressers and two closets and two beds. And um, what can I say? It was a girl's room.
1: (laughs) No no posters or anything on the walls of any.
2: uh, At some point we had now this is the 80s, 70s, 70s. We had a big rainbow painted across uh, the ceiling. Um, And we had this little really cool stuffed hot air balloon kind of hanging down. Um, So that was nice.
1: Cool. That's awesome. Um, Ruth. I wanted to thank you so much. Where can people uh, contact you uh, on social media or website or uh, share your contact details? I'm
2: based? on on LinkedIn, Ruth Fisher. Um, you can find me at the Medical Cannabis Primer. Um, and you can contact me through, well, I guess on my contact details on LinkedIn, I don't have really, uh, I'm not a big fan of social media other than LinkedIn. So that's about it.
1: Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on.
2: It's been a real pleasure. real great conversation. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, Best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're canna-curious or running a cannabis, Infused has canna-conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.